0: Welcome to the King's Cost, dynamic teaching recorded live at King's Church in Cambridge, England. We hope you are blessed and challenged by listening to the ministry today. And now, here's the broadcast. Well, hello, guys. You guys are happy, huh? <laughs> I gotta say, the worship this morning was tremendous. It went one hundred percent up to Jesus. I could hear behind me is what sounded like a multitude of lovers loving jesus and I just want to say it 's an honor to to be here with you, those of you who love him so much. How many of you have no idea who I am? Let me see your hands. Okay, great. I'll just tell you a little bit. Is it okay if I tell you a little bit about myself before I get into the word? Is that alright? I won't go long. I never, I never do. Um, so I was born and raised in the church. My dad was a pastor all my life. Is it okay if I come down here or will it ring? Okay. So, um, all my life I was in the church. How many of you grew up in the church? How many of you did not? Let me see. Okay. So I was one of those ones that was in the church on, Sunday mornings before the janitor, we were the last ones to leave. I was one of those ones that was there every Wednesday night. I was in Christian school, Sunday school, Christian camps, all of this kind of stuff. And I could tell you a lot about God, but I did not know God. There was no living, vibrant interaction with Him. It was all head knowledge about the Bible and religious rituals and what I can do and what I can't do. That was my life. So in 1995, God poured out His Spirit in Pensacola, Florida. How many of you know about the Brownsville Revival? Let me see your hands. Okay, how many of you have no idea? Okay, I'll I'll tell you real quick. So 1995, God pours out His Spirit. Now, what I mean by that is that a normal Sunday service, there was a river of God that flew, that went into the place and it lasted for five years. For the first three years, they met every single night till the early hours of the morning. It got to the point where they had to make a rule that you couldn't line up before 6 a.m. for the 7 p.m. service because people would just sleep on the lawn. Do you understand what I'm talking about? This is a move of God, a actual sustained visitation of God. I don't understand it. But I do know this. It was real. (laughs) Because four million people came through the doors in four years without one advertisement. There was no Facebook. There wasn't even smartphones. So they came from all over. And busloads of people were going up and coming back to my church. And they'd come back saved, healed, delivered. Their worship was exuberant. Marriages were healed. It was incredible. And my dad one of the pastors, sees all this stuff going on, and he says to my mom, he says, hey, why don't you go and check it out? He goes, you take your crazy intercessor lady friends and go check it out. How many you guys know the crazy intercessor ladies? Let me just, you know what I'm talking about when I say that? Yeah. You know the crazy intercessor ladies that actually believe God hears them when they pray? And they actually believe that they can affect history through prayer? They actually believe that Praying people are the greatest thing God can give to the earth and the earth can give to God. These kind of people that actually believe that we must pray his will into the earth, they take it seriously and they actually do it. Those kind of ladies is what I'm talking about. (laughs) I owe my life to such women who have separated themselves for prayer. So what happened was my mom goes up, okay? She goes up on a Friday, She's there for a Saturday service. She comes back on Sunday. She's there one day, guys. One day. She comes back, and I will never forget the day my mother came back. I was in the kitchen, sitting on the table, in the kitchen, on the counter. My brother was getting something out of the refrigerator, and my mom comes walking in from the right side. And when she comes walking in, I look at her, and I see her, and it's my mom, but it's not my mom. Her face was radiant. It looked like every single muscle in her face was completely relaxed. She looked like her eyes had lights behind them. She looked alive. And I, the only way I can describe it was she looked holy. When she came in to the kitchen, my brother saw her and was so stricken by how different she looked. He ran away from her. <laughs> And he went behind the table, he put the table between her and him, and he goes, don't come near me, mom, don't come near me. (laughs) In other words, she had been saved and filled with the Holy Ghost. And she was so different. She comes up to me as I'm on that counter, and she puts her hands around my face like this, and she looks in my eyes, and she goes, oh, Eric, will you come with me? I said, absolutely not. (laughs) I said, no, I don't want to go. And so from that day on, she was worshipping, vacuuming, worshipping, doing the dishes. She'd just be dancing in the house like Cinderella. She had fallen in love with Jesus. And it was so apparent. She was so different. Her tone was changed. The sound of of her voice sounded like something was missing from it. She was different. She would put on these Brownsville videos and I would... Take my basketball and dribble through the, the living room actually, and I would look at the TV and see these strange things happening. You know, somebody said her God was holding her hand and it was really strange stuff. I was weirded out. She kept coming to me, Will you come? Will you come? I said, No, 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 I don't want to. I don't I have any desire. Then she figured out something. She goes, well, he's really interested in this girl. So if I get the girl to go, maybe he'll go. So she does it. She works it out. I'm like, sure, I'll go. And so I go. We drive up there. And I will never forget what I saw because I haven't seen anything remotely close to it since. I've seen things that were similar, but never to this degree. We drive up on that, that Cervantes Street, you know, right over there, DeSoto Street, Cervantes Street. It's a little town where there's there's just, it's just run down. There's You wouldn't think that God would pick it, is what I'm saying. And I, we drive up and I see a line of people that goes all the way down the road and around the block and around the other side and it's popping out the other side on the other street. I'm like, what in the world is going on? I grew up not wanting to go to one service and these people are waiting in line all day long to get into a service. So just rationally, how many of you are logical people here? Rationally, logically, I was like, what is actually going on? Because if everybody was outside of a local store lined up around the block, the first thought is, what are they doing? What's in there? That's what I was thinking. What in the world is happening inside of that building that these people are waiting all day long? The local businesses found out what's going on and they started setting up shops, selling their products and all, all kinds of stuff. And I remember complaining and cussing and just literally so upset that I was waiting in the hot Florida sun all day long to get into a dumb church service. This is what I was thinking. Then I remember they started to let people in. And the closer I got to the church, the more I started to shake. Shake with fear. It wasn't yet the shaking of the spirit. I was afraid because I was like, what's going to happen when I go into this building, right? So I'm holding the hand of my girlfriend, and we walk through the threshold of the church. And once I stepped through the threshold of the church, I stepped into the glory of God. I didn't need anybody to tell me I needed to get right with God. My sins flew up in my face. I didn't need a preacher The presence of God was so heavy, I was ready to give my life to Jesus and surrender everything because of the conviction of the Spirit. Now, let me just define conviction for you because once you say that word, some people start feeling like, you know, it's it's associated with condemnation. Let me just explain to you what conviction is. It is a thorough convincing that you need God. I am thoroughly convinced I I need God. So I came into that thorough convincing of needing God tremendously. Steve Hill gets up there. How many know that name, Steve Hill? Steve Hill, when he grabbed that microphone and he started to preach, that's the first day that I met Jesus was the day that I saw Steve Hill. He shot arrows from the pulpit with his mouth. And one of those arrows went inside of my chest, and I'm still bleeding from that arrow that he shot back in 1996 is when I went. I ran down to that altar, and I gave my life to Jesus. Then when I was all born again, my mom was weeping, so happy. And then she looks at me and she goes, okay, now you need the Holy Ghost. (laughs) And I said, oh, mom, I'm good. I'm, I just got saved. I'm clean. I know I'm going to heaven. I'm good, mom. I don't need, I don't need anything else. She goes, no, no, no. Eric, you need the Holy Ghost. So she goes, let them pray for you. And I look around and they're laying hands on people and they're flying back or shaking on the ground. I'm like, no, mom, I'm good. I don't want, I don't want to get prayed. I'm afraid of that too. So she goes, Oh, Eric, for me, please just let them pray for you. And so I scan the prayer team for a silver-haired old couple, real meek and mild kind, over on the side. <laughs> and I see that I'm just like, uh, them. I'll let them pray for me. <laughs> and so I go over there and I. I'm waiting in line to get prayed for and then I I come up next and they're just so sweet, sweet old people that just love Jesus. And I look at this tall, silver-haired old man and he grabs me by my shoulders and he turns me to face his little wife. (laughs) So now I'm looking down at this little grandma and I can still see her hand shaking like this when she goes to put her hand on my head. She had a little bit of oil on her fingertips. She put that her fingers right on my forehead and she began to say it. she began to say a word that changed my life. She said, drink, drink. And I'm thinking to myself, drink what? (laughs) How? I had no paradigm, no grid. I had no idea what she was talking about. But I realized quickly, she's not going to stop saying this, drink, drink until something happens. So I said in my heart, you know that moment in your heart when you let the walls down? In my heart, I said, oh Lord, if if there is anything for me, then I'll take it. And I don't care what I look like, I, I will receive it. And in that moment, the power of God came through that old grandma and went through my body. And I was filled with the Holy Spirit right there, I, I couldn't stand because of the weight of God's glory. And I felt such currents of what I call bliss going through my entire being. I felt as if the greatest feelings that you could ever experience in this world were all simultaneously happening to me. It was like, it was like the fullness of another joy, another peace that I had never yet known was going through my entire being. And I could feel it. And it was that day that everything began to change for me. I went back home and I became addicted to the way it feels when I give my attention to Jesus. I began to lock myself in my room because I didn't have any desire to do anything else. My basketball, I used to sleep with it in my bed. I was a basketball fanatic. It became flat in the garage because I had lost complete... I had lost totally interest in all other things. I just wanted this wonderful experience of this man... Christ Jesus. And so my parents were worried about me before because of the people I was hanging out with, and now they're worried about me because I was hanging out with no people. <laughs> and so that was 1996, and I began to preach in the jails, and, and with my dad, we would bring a choir in, and we'd sing to the Lord, and then I'd preach a short gospel message. Normally, I'd preach verbatim Steve Hill sermons. I memorize them and I just say the same exact things he said <laughs> because I had no idea what I was, what I was doing. I still really don't know what I'm doing. But I, I say that to say I'm not, I never once said to the Lord, make me a preacher. I never once said to the Lord, you know, I want to be a minister, Lord. You know, as a matter of fact, after I graduated the Brownsville Revival School of Ministry, that's where I met wonderful people like Daniel Kalinda, Brian Garen, David Papavisi, these guys that I run with to this day. When, When I graduated there in 1999, I started to work for Reinhard Bunke. Do do you know that name, Reinhard Bunke? And I had no... I wasn't trying to get into ministry. I actually was just stacking boxes in the warehouse, praying in the Spirit, just enjoying the Lord. And then uh, I got let go in 2007 at Reinhard Bunke's ministry with a bunch of other people. They were downsizing. I had probably the least significant job there. (laughs) And so I had to find a job... And I got a construction job, the only job I could find. So I was digging ditches all day long for three and a half years, not even trying to get into ministry. I had no desire for it whatsoever. I just wanted to live in his presence. As a matter of fact, when I was in Brownsville, I would say things like this to the Lord. I said, Lord, even if I'm a janitor in a closet, if you give me your presence, I have everything. It doesn't matter to me what my life looks like. If I have you, I have everything. You could take everything from me. If I have you, I've got everything. But if you give me everything and you take away him, I've got nothing. And so I felt this internal reality of Jesus is enough. Jesus is more than enough. Jesus is all. Jesus is fulfillment. I felt it at the very beginning and began to just steward it and realize it and experience it over and over and over again. And it set me free from the need to have anything else or the need to try to do something or try to make myself relevant or significant. I literally had no desire for it whatsoever. I just wanted the wonderful presence of Jesus. You say, Eric, why are you saying that? Because maybe there's somebody here right now and you have an idea of what you should be doing or you have an idea of something that you feel you're called to do. But I'm telling you right now, some of us need to find contentment in the person of the Lord to the point where it doesn't matter anymore. And I I, want to talk to you right now for a short second about holy complacency. Now, this word complacency is very hated amongst Christianity. Because it's like, oh yeah, you shouldn't be complacent. But the word complacency means absolutely and totally satisfied. That's what it means. And so there's a holy complacency, which means in you, I have everything I could ever want. And here, I am completely satisfied. I need nothing else. In other words, tell me whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. If you tell me nothing to do, I'm totally fine. Whether I'm in your hand or I'm on the shelf, all is wonderful to me because I belong to you. And this is what is really needed. I see a lot of people, they're ruining their joy in the Lord because all they can see is out ahead. And all they're, they're like, what am I supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? What about who's with you? Yeah. And one time I was taking my wife on a date and all I could think about was the steak that I was going to eat at the restaurant we were going to. And every car was an object between me and my desire. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I'm just getting upset. And I felt in my heart like a question rise up. And that question was, what's the purpose of this night? And I thought, oh, the purpose of the night is to be with my wife. And in that moment, I felt like, man, this is a real good picture of what happens in a lot of Christians' lives. They're looking out ahead at what they're going to eat or what is going to happen or what they're going to experience out here. They forget the whole purpose is the one with you, the one next to you. And there's an enjoyment in the Lord that sets us free from all of these things, these hustles and bustles, these runnings and these trying to make something happen or find a relevance in the eyes of men or a significance. I'm telling you that in Jesus, there is so much that you have forever a job of exhausting the riches of Jesus Christ that you'll never be able to finish. So just seeing him as everything, you dive into his person, and for the rest of your life, you'll be trying to exhaust him. And that's enough. There's nothing more to be done outside of what he speaks to you, but that's in his person too. <laughs> Why are you saying this, Eric? Because I just feel in my heart, like one of the biggest problems that I find amongst the fiery ones, and, and I say that in a positive way, the fiery ones. Is sometimes there's a burning to do something and we move past the person of the Lord. And we're looking so much to, to accomplish that we forget to enjoy. But I'm telling you, enjoying the Lord is the only way to progress. Once you stop enjoying the Lord, you're not progressing anymore. Even if externally it looks like to everybody else, you're doing fantastic. If you lose enjoyment of the Lord, you're no longer moving forward. The whole thing is about enjoying His person. If we miss it there, we missed it. It doesn't matter if they're getting out of wheelchairs. It doesn't matter if they're, you're packing out a stadium. It doesn't matter if you evangelize to every person and your job. You save your whole workplace. If you lose the enjoyment of the Lord, He didn't get from you what He wanted. Because what He's after is your heart. And what He desires more than anything else is that you would love Him. Can I just talk to you a second about loving Him and how important it is? Now, I, I find that there's a, 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 I don't, I don't know what to call it. It's kind of like a paradigm or a mentality or a view, uh, and it takes away loving Jesus out of this whole thing. And so we look at obedience: Are you obeying? And then we start saying, "That's how you'll prove your love to Jesus if you obey." Listen. Obedience is only a proof of love because obedience is the fruit of love. What do you mean? I mean, if you put your love on Him, you will obey Him. But you can't try to obey Him without loving Him. It won't work. Even if you can succeed in outwardly obeying Jesus, if He doesn't have your heart, you broke the first one anyways. (laughs) You understand what I mean? It's so important, guys, and I feel God has sent me here to just just remind you of what you already know: that God wants you to love Him because He loves you, and then to enjoy Him is everything. I remember Michael Kulianos, one of my best friends in the world. I I just love him so much. He he was going through a real difficult time. You ever been through a difficult time? Just seems like everything around you is just crashing, or there's oppressions of all kinds. He was in this really heavy season in his life and he went to these Lutheran nuns that are charismatic in Arizona. They're wonderful ladies. They have dedicated their lives to easing the sufferings of the Lord. What do you mean by that, Eric, easing the sufferings of the Lord? They believe that Jesus looks down at the earth and his heart is broken for humanity and they want to dedicate their lives to love him so that he finds comfort in them. That's how they live their lives. So they've dedicated everything. They've sold everything, and they live and maintain a prayer garden, and they live off donations, and they love Jesus. That's what they do. And they are filled with God. I walked onto the campus, and you could feel you walk into the presence of the Lord. They're very similar to Brownsville. As a matter of fact, I told Michael when we went there together, I said, bro, this is very similar to the, the sense that was in on, on the campus at Brownsville. As a matter of fact, if you, well, if you go up to where the sisters live, the property next to them is all brown. And the property that they have is luscious and green. It's really strange. The Lord has blessed it so much. There's a dividing line between everything else and them. It's just funny how it is. Remember in Exodus, that's what the Lord did. He drew a dividing line between the children of Israel and everybody else. He made a distinguishing line. That's how it is with these sisters. So Michael's in this terrible time in his life and he goes there and he begins to unload on the sisters I need wisdom I need you to help me figure out exactly what to do how do I deal with these issues in my heart and with these people all kinds of stuff and they look at him after he's finished and they say well uh, let Jesus love you and then love him back he looks at them and he's like did you hear anything that I just said to you Then he's like, no, but I need advice. And they said, oh, here's our advice. Just let Jesus love you and love him back. (laughs) And he's getting to the point where he's frustrated. And he says, listen, sisters, I've come here for guidance. I've come here for help. I do love Jesus. So will you help me? And they looked at him and they said, oh, Michael, let Jesus love you and love him back. And it clicked. Herein is the root of why he was too low and getting pushed around by all the storms of life. It's because he had left the heights of first love. I remember one night, my my daughter and I were laying down looking up at the stars. And when we were looking at the stars, she says to me, Oh, Daddy, there's so many stars in the sky. I said, Oh, yes, baby, there is. She goes, Where do they go in the daytime? I said, Oh, baby, they're always there but the sun is so high and it's so bright that you can no longer see them. And when I said it, I was like, holy moly, (laughs) that is incredible. I feel like when we lift the sun to the heights, it extinguishes all the other lights. But when the sun is taken out of the heights, you begin to see all kinds of other lights. So what the problem is with a lot of people is that they have taken Jesus out of the heights and they start seeing all this other stuff. Are you saying that we should deny that there are problems? No, I'm saying go above them. How how do you do that? Well, you just wait on the Lord. (laughs) And then He will come underneath you like wind (laughs) and pick you up. It's not flat to get up there. It's not okay hummingbird your way to the heights. No, no. You wait and He takes. Your job looking. His job, taking. <laughs> so He wraps you. R-A-P-T takes you up above these things. So I say to you today, this is, this is really what I feel from the Lord. There are so many things going on in this room because we're humans and we are surrounded by humans and we are in this fallen world which lies under the power of the wicked one, 1 John five nineteen. I feel the Lord has come to remind you that it is simple As enjoying Him, loving Him, letting Him love you. And then He will take you above all of these things. Not saying that He's going to make everything perfect. He's going to make things irrelevant. Do you understand what I mean when I say this? Sometimes we want God to remove the rain. But sometimes He doesn't remove the rain. He just takes you underneath the pavilion of His person. And He saves you from its influence. It's still raining, but you can no longer sense it. Do you understand what I mean? I I believe this is very important for us because what happens a lot of times is that when we're in the rain and we don't run into the name, the name of the Lord is a strong tower the righteous run into it. They don't just know it. They go into Him. There's a difference between just knowing the name of Jesus and going into the name of Jesus. Taking refuge in Him. I remember I I was with my wife one time and it started actually to rain. And I said, don't worry, I know where a pavilion is. And she looks at me, she's like, well, take me to it. In other words, the knowledge of the pavilion isn't going to deliver her from the rain. She's got to go underneath the pavilion. David calls God, capital P, his pavilion. His name, pavilion. He will literally take you underneath the shadow of his wing. And there you will rejoice. And there you will be safe. And there you will be covered by him. There is nothing like the divine shadow. And if you will come underneath that shadow, shadow, what will happen to you is you will find that the things you thought were so important no longer have any relevance to you anymore. If Richard Wormbrand can be 14 feet beneath the earth for seven years in solitary confinement, and then when he's released, say, I long for those days. He's got a Christianity that's missing in a lot of people's hearts. He said, they put me in solitary confinement, but they didn't realize, after taking everything from me, they gave me instruments. Then you say, what instruments did did they give him? His chains. (laughs) He turned them into symbols unto God. He said, here I was in the caresses of the bridegroom, and I knew his kisses. These are the words of Richard Wormbrand. He knew the romantic love of Jesus, and it lifted him above the Pressure of solitary confinement, being fed one slice of bread a week, dying literally slowly. And yet he says, I long for those days again. What is that? It is being taken above any kind of circumstance and situation. Your joy is not dependent upon what happens to you, your joy is locked into his words that come from His lips. Your joy and your peace are inside of your fellowship with Him. <laughs> Andrew Murray said, sin is powerless in fellowship with God. You say, Eric, you know, I've just been really struggling recently. I, You know, I thought I kicked this and it's been coming back. Fellowship with God. But what, what do you mean? I mean, go into fellowship with God, you'll find sin is powerless. You say, but Eric, I, I do fellowship with God but I still am dealing with this issue. Enter into more fellowship with God. Eat more. Receive more. Drink more. Obviously, what you're receiving is not sustaining you to the extent that you need, so you need to get more. Uh, Eric, is it actually that way? Yeah, because Jesus is the one that likened himself to food. It's like they were up in heaven, and then they were going to create humanity, and they look at each other, and they're like, they're going to need a way for they're going to need a way to understand what we are for them. Therefore, let's make a principle called food for life and we'll install it in their humanity so that they need to eat every day in order to have nutrients to be able to live. We'll install that in them. And then when I come, I'll stand in front of them and I'll say, I'm food. And then they'll get it. They'll understand that they need me every hour. They receive nutrients from me so that they can live out my nature. I'm telling you, religion tries to get you to walk according to the nature of God without giving you the nutrients that come from His nourishment. And so you got people really upset with themselves because they're unable to yield forth fruit. Fruit only comes from life. And life comes from eating. You eat You live life bears fruit and it's effortless. You don't need to say, Oh man, you know, I'm working on my patience right now. Stop working on your patience, forget patience, and fellowship with God, and he'll be patience through you. Here's the this is the this is the uh It's the secret, and it's something that I don't hear. I'm sure you hear it here because you are pastored by a man of God who walks in the Spirit. But in my life, growing up in the church, it wasn't like that. It wasn't men, you know, worshiping the Lord like your pastor does and just speaking with the authority that your pastor does. So I grew up around text, black and white, gripping your cross, gritting your teeth, and doing your best to obey black and white. But with the Spirit... It is completely different. He now installs inside of you new desires. So the root of the issue is taken out. You, you have some people that are like, I externally need to change my life. So they do everything they can externally, not realizing that the problem is internal. It's literally like mowing the grass. Do you guys mow your grass here? In Florida, you mow every week. You're mowing because if you don't, it gets really high because the sun is always shining. So you have people that mow their grass and then next week they come back and they're like, man, I got to mow my grass again. Oh man, next week I got to mow my grass again. So you got people whose lives in Christianity are just literally maintaining the externals. But God wants to go in and rip out the roots so it doesn't grow anymore. And then you have effortless holiness. In other words, holiness, that's not a result of you trying to do something different. You're fellowshipping, and he's coming out. I remember there's a story of a, a young Catholic girl who's in Sunday school. And do you have you ever seen a Catholic church with the stained glass windows with maybe like St. Francis on there or something? <laughs> he's like a bird on his shoulder or whatever. Well, I remember there's a... This, this little girl with her other, you know, classmates in Sunday school class was asked by the teacher, does anybody know what a saint is? And all the kids look at each other like, no, no. This little girl's looking up at the stained glass window, windows, and she says, oh, oh, oh. And the teacher says, yes, do you know what a saint is? She goes, yes, they're the ones that the sun shines through. And to me, that simple, childlike recognition, that's God coming through a man, unobstructed, in his own color, the color of his own personality, that right there is what this thing is all about. It's just literally giving everything, every part over to him, giving everything over, and then he can come through unobstructed godliness in a man, is when God is seen in a man. That's it. Because all the glory must go to him. All the glory must be his because we can't fashion ourselves to be saints because then you got some of the glory. Listen, the only way for God to get all the glory is for God to do all the work. But if you do half the work and he does half the work, then you're worthy of half the glory. But if you want God to get all glory through your life, you yield into Him and let Him yield everything out of you. The only way to yield forth fruit is to yield into His person. The more you yield to Him, the more fruit yields out. And what does Eric, what does this have to do with my daily life? This will affect your marriage. This will affect your parenting. This will affect your working in the workplace. This will affect your fellowship with your friends. This will affect how you evangelize. This will affect every part of your person. Why? Because as you yield into Him in satisfaction and enjoyment and love exchange, you begin to externally bear forth the light of Him who resides on the inside. And I know you guys hear these things a lot here, but I'm saying them to you to remind you and to encourage you and tell you that you are the apple of God's eye. You're the treasure of this God of mine. If you could see how much joy you bring to his heart, you wouldn't even believe it. You say, there's no way. I, me? I was reading Song of Solomon actually this morning. (laughs) And he says in Song of Solomon, he goes, my love, my perfect one, you are unique and lovely to me. Maybe you're here right now and that's exactly what you need to hear because you've been condemning yourself. You've been beating yourself up. You feel yourself to be worthless. You feel yourself to be unrecognizable to other people or even insignificant to God. I'm telling you right now, the Lord looks at you and he says, you are my perfect one and you are lovely to me. And you have all my attention and I know everything that's going on with you. Just let me love you and you'll find in my love everything that you need in loving me. I encourage you to slip into a love with God like you've never known before because you find in this love with him that he has in that love relationship full control. This is what we like to call these days bridal love. (laughs) This is that bride and bridegroom, love exchange, the starry-eyed bride and the romantic king in moving in concert one with another. Remember when I told you my mother came home and she was like Cinderella, so this is love, Mm -hmm. so this is love. Remember that? She says, so this is what makes life divine. I'm all aglow and now I know the key to all heaven is mine. My heart has wings and I can fly. I'll touch every star in the sky. So this is the miracle that I've been dreaming of. So this is love. Cinderella falls head over heels when she looks into the eyes of the prince. And they move in concert one with another in such a way that when she goes back to her normal mundane things, all she can do is remember the wonderful experience of looking into the king's eyes. Oh, a Cinderella people is what Jesus is looking for. Those that love him holy, some say it was Hudson Taylor actually who said, some of us love God truly, but not holy. What does that mean? It means you may have a true desire for Him or a true love for him, but not a complete one. Do you remember what it says about Solomon? Solomon loved the Lord, but dot dot dot. He loved the Lord, but dot dot dot. In other words, there was additions, there was add-ons. Some of us don't replace Jesus. We just add to him, but they're equally condemnable, if you will. They're equally destructible. Whether you replace him or you add to him, either way, you don't have only him. And so here is the Christian reality is keeping everything centered and fixed upon a love exchange with Jesus, not just theoretically or theologically, but actually. That causes your heart to enjoy Him and love Him. Last thing I'll say is this, and I'll I'll close right here. In the book of Revelation, we have Jesus writing these letters. Do you remember this? To the seven churches, there are seven Jesus letters. And in one of these letters, Jesus does what is very common in that day of writing letters, which was you start the letter with affirmations, or you start the letter with... A commend, commendations or uh, encouragement, and then you bring in the, the whole message of the letter. You following me? So he starts the letter, and he says some very uh, encouraging things to this church. He says to them, I know your toil. Do you know this word toil? This, this word toil actually means persevering even in the midst of opposition or pain. That's what toil means. Jesus says, I know that you are continuing on with me, even though there's things coming against you, and even though there's pain in the midst of it, you won't, say, you're like Marines taking the beachhead. We're going. It doesn't matter what comes against us. We will take this beach. That's toil. And he says, I see that. He, he, he commends them for this. I see your toil. It's wonderful. Then he goes on and he says something in a different area that's just as interesting. He goes, you're able to discern who are apostles and who are not. In other words, they have really good doctrine. They know what's clean and they know what's not clean. Do you understand? They're they're not the kind of people that are easily swayed because they've got roots in the biblical curriculum. They understand what's going on. So you're not going to come in and say, I'm Jesus Christ. They're going to be like, yeah, right. You know, because I know what the Bible says, you know. This is a protection from deception, is knowing the scriptures. Very, very clear. The reason why so many people get Deceived is because they have dusty Bibles. <laughs> so with all that to say, he commends them for this. He says, man, you guys are able to discern. What's... And then he says, you don't tolerate the men of evil or men of sin. In other words, they don't have any tolerance for evil. This is really good, isn't it? Yes. So it's like, listen, if there's a cloud in the way, if there's something that seems like it's evil, I don't want anything to do with it. Isn't this good? So you have all three of these Incredible things. You have toil. or Continue on, it doesn't matter. Then you have doctrine. We know what's right, we know what's wrong. We read the scriptures. Then you have absence from sin. I'm not messing around with sin. Jesus commends them from all, for all three of these things. And then he brings in the hammer. Then he goes, but I got something against you. You don't love me no more. Did you? Did you just hear that? You and I would think this. If you have toil, you have good doctrine, and you stay away from sin, you're developing spiritually. You're mature. You're the ones. Jesus says, listen, all those things are wonderful, but they're far below first love. First love is the highest. Jesus even goes so far to say this. If you don't repent, in other words, come back to the first love with him, I'm going to take away from you the candlestick. Do you know what this means? I don't, but I know this. I don't want it to happen to me. <laughs> so maybe you're here and you've been taking the beachhead. Maybe you've been staying away from sin. Maybe you've been really in the scriptures. But you know in your heart that love exchange with Jesus is is not there anymore. It's not like it was. I was, I was telling Nathan this morning, man, that there was just... We just got done with a conference in, uh, where were we? Ealing. We were in Ealing. We were just a Kingdom Encounter conference. And everything was about loving Jesus. The whole of the conference was saying, Jesus is enough. You can love Him. Love Him. Be loved by Him. Enjoy Him. Oh, enter into the holding of the Lamb of God. Enter into the sweet kisses and the exchange of love with, with God. And this morning when I woke up, I felt such a fresh first love in in my heart. I I went in to pray and as soon as I sat down, without any even words, he began to kiss my heart. See, the bride looks for kisses before words. There's a, a direct, loving, intimate love exchange with Jesus that is far above all the toil, all the cleanness of doctrine and all the staying away from sin there is because it's so much higher. It's called first love. So just close your eyes and put your hand on your heart. And I I want you just to say this with me. We're not going to do an altar call or anything, because I know you guys love him. But just put your hand on your heart and say this, Jesus, wherever there may be a part of me that has lost love, I ask you now to forgive me you deserve first place please help me help me to love you help me to love you like you deserve to be loved help me to give you the attention you deserve touch my heart with love again fill me with the spirit that the love of God would be shed abroad